again, what I want to lay out before you today is the, the main thrust of what the Apostle Peter is saying here this morning. And it's essentially this, that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you did not follow a mere fable. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you did not engage in belief in some kind of myth. That when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, rather you responded to a message which was not only attested by apostles, reliable men, but you came to faith in Jesus Christ through a message that was divinely attested. It was attested by the voice of glory. It was attested by the voice of the Father himself. And what I want to do this morning with you is I want to lay out Peter's argument, we might say. And if we look at this passage of Scripture, what we will see is that Peter will bring the bear three witnesses that show to us, again, that that faith in which we embrace has been divinely attested. The first witness that he will bring to us is something in an indirect way, but the first witness he brings to us, again, is a very important witness, is the person of Jesus Christ himself. Notice again what, what Peter says here in verse 16. He says, We have not followed uh, cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want to do in this first point, I'll come back to it. I'm just giving you the overview now. But in this first point, I want to bring into this discussion, I want to bring into this line of argumentation the person of Christ himself. Because I think that when we look at the apostolic testimony, which is, the belief, which is to be believed, when we hear divine attestation, which was given on the holy mountain, which is to be believed, we should also consider the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons why we embrace the gospel the way that we do is because of the person of Christ himself. We'll come back to that. So Peter will set before our thinking the person of our glorious Lord. The second thing that Peter will mention will be, again, his own eyewitness testimony. Peter is saying, listen, these things are not just tales that have been told. These things have been understood by eyewitnesses. These things have been attested to by eyewitnesses. And you know how important eyewitness testimony was not only in that day, but in our own, but in our own day as well. Even with all of our scientific advancements by way of forensic and everything else, when, when, um, when uh, investigators try to figure out what happened and what did not happen, eyewitnesses' accounts are still very important. And so Peter will bring to bear the fact of his eyewitness testimony to hearing and seeing what he says about Jesus Christ. But then thirdly, there's the voice of the Father. And what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture is how often the Father loves to speak about his Son. It's an amazing thing to see over and over again in the Word of God. The Father loves giving testimony to the Son. And in these three points... Peter will make the primary emphasis that we're seeing here, that your faith does not rest on a fable that was cunningly devised, but rather your faith rests upon a truth that is divinely attested. And I hope and I pray that by the grace of God, as I work through this passage of Scripture, you will come away again with, with, a, with a, even a firmer basis for your faith in Jesus Christ than what you've walked in the church this morning with. So let's take a look then at the passage of Scripture before us. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 16. And the first thing I want you to see here is notice how Peter introduces this, uh, this 16th verse, uh, starting with verse 15. Remember, we, we discussed this the last time we were together. Peter says this, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. And you remember what we did at that time. We emphasized the importance of the written word. How that the scripture is foundational to the ongoing of Christianity. 
How there is a sense in which Peter did not say, I will establish an ongoing apostolate. He does not say, I will establish an ongoing um, uh, uh, authority that is, that is found in my person so that you can look to a person. He says, no, I will give to you a written record. And it's by way of the word of God written that we have truths that we can hold on to. And so we see here an emphasis given to the scripture. Peter will come back to this next week when we consider what Peter is saying. We will have a passage that is really central to our whole doctrine of inspiration and our whole doctrine of uh, revelation. But right now, again, Peter is making a case for the fact that he wants the Christian faith to be established in those things which are written, those things which he was an eyewitness of. So he speaks about the idea of leaving the church that which would be profitable to, to them. And then he goes on in verse 16 and he says this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the, uh, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now what is this thing, this, these cunningly devised fables? Well, if nothing else, it's a memorable phrase, isn't it? Cunningly devised fables. You probably have that phrase in your memory if, you're, if you've read the King James as I, as, as I use. And, and even in the ESV, it's something of a, a memorable phrase, the way it's put together. But what does Peter mean here? Well, what is a fable? A fable is essentially a, fable is essentially a legend. Uh, it's a myth. It's a fictional tale in contrast to that which is true in its account. And what Peter is saying here is essentially this, that the essence of Christianity, the reality of Christianity is not made up on some fictional story. That there is in space and time, in real history, the person of Jesus Christ, the accomplishments of Jesus Christ, the teaching of Jesus Christ, the reality of the gospel itself. And that's what your faith rests on. It's kind of interesting that when we consider this idea of, uh, of uh, fables, one of the things that was very current in the day in which Peter wrote was that fables were very much a part and parcel of religious life at that day. There were Jewish fables that Paul repeatedly warned both Timothy and Titus against. Uh, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Neither give heed to fables. And later on in 1 Timothy, he says this, Have nothing to do with myths. In Titus chapter 1, verse 4, he says, do not give heed to Jewish fables. And the, the concept or the idea of Jewish fables really surrounded the, the, the whole sense of oral tradition that was passed on along with the written uh, scriptures. And there was, in the process of time, more weight given to the oral tradition than there was to the scriptures themselves. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ, in engaging with the religious leaders of, of his day, had to say, you have heard it was said of them of old, but I say unto you. In other words, tradition had built up to such an extent that it became very, uh, how can I say it, very foundational in the thinking of many of the Jewish uh, leaders at that time. So there were these Jewish myths that had to be avoided. There were Gentile myths as well, were, were there not? We're all familiar with the Greek myths. And the Greek myths by way of how the gods came down and, and all the, the mythology that we're even aware of in our day. But strangely enough, there were even, if I can use it this way, even Christian myths or fables that developed over time. We know that there were uh, writings such as the, the Gospel of Thomas that have these very fantastical accounts of Jesus Christ that have no bearing in Scripture. And that we would have to say that they would not be accounted as trustworthy documents as to build our faith upon. 
And so what we see here is Peter is saying this. We have not followed those kind of things. And we need to be aware of those type of things. But rather our faith rests on something more sure. And that is the person and the reality of Jesus Christ himself. Now, one of the things that I want to say, even before we go on uh, to look at some of the, uh, some more of the details in the text here, it's very interesting in our day when we when we consider the idea of myth, what a myth is. And again, let me just say what I've said before: myth or fable is is usually that which is considered as legendary as opposed to true, a fictional tale. Again, in contrast to to valid or true accounts. But what's interesting is that when we use the word myth in our day, particularly in religious circles, it's not uncommon to hear the word myth used along these lines. That what a myth is, is essentially this. That a myth is a story, maybe partly true, maybe not complete, you know, maybe not complete in all of its details. But it is a story, it is an account of something that people believe has happened, and that in that account there is something worthwhile to hold on to for religious value, for spiritual value, for some kind of cultural value, that it gives identity to the long-held two traditions that a culture or somebody might hold on to. And we would, if, you're, if you would study uh, mythology or, or even world religions in our day, you would come across this idea that a myth is that which is not totally false, neither is it totally true, but there is a lesson that is worth keeping. Well, I'm saying to you on the basis of this passage of Scripture, that's not what Christianity is founded on. You understand Religious scholars may use or incorporate that type of language to speak about myth. But that's not what Peter is speaking about here. Peter is not speaking about something that is partially true and then he's blowing up to make it more significant. Peter is not talking about Jesus of Nazareth and we have to do something with Jesus of Nazareth. So let's create all these stories about him in order that people will be attracted to him. You see, that's the way the religious world thinks today. That what these early disciples did, they had all their hopes in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he came to this untimely end. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to build up the legend surrounding him. And some people, even some professing Christians will say, well, you see, some of these things in the Bible aren't really true. But they have, these, they have this value. They have this, this value to, to keep our traditions and to, and to teach us certain things. And Peter says, that's not what you believed. And that's not the reality of Jesus Christ. He says, and what he then does is he goes to this eyewitness account. He makes the fact, he makes the point that there were things that he saw with his own eyes. And again, we'll get to that. But again, what I want to do is I want to take up this first point by way of the reason why your faith is a divinely attested faith is number one, because of the person of Jesus Christ himself. Notice again what we see here in verse 16. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting here is this little phrase, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It would be very easy for us to think of that phrase as referencing his first coming. And I don't think that we should exclude it from our understanding of what the phrase is. But the phrase really is pointing toward his second coming. And what Peter is picking up on here is that Peter is picking up on one of the primary elements of the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ taught that he would return in glory. 
The Lord Jesus Christ made the emphasis that he would return in his father's glory, he says one time. And another time he says about he will come in his own glory. And we see the idea of glory attached to both the father and the son in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is that this was the very thing that the scoffers of Peter's day were attacking. Just take your Bible and turn over a page or two to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And the passage, again, you're probably familiar with it. The passage reads this way. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For first, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So what Peter is arguing against is this attack on the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying, listen, this is no fable. This is truth. This is that which our Lord Jesus Christ affirmed. This is that which was the substance of his teaching. And that's why, in my first point, I want to bring to your attention the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And consider the person of our Lord Jesus Christ with me. You say, here is this one who lived truly in history who lived and died. You see, sometimes we come across these these scholars who who would question whether or not Jesus of Nazareth even lived. It's almost almost absurd to, to think that these type of things can be said, but sometimes these statements are made. But when we read in the pages of history, we go to Jewish, the Jewish historian Josephus. We see Josephus mentions him. We go to the Greek historian Herodotus. We see that Herodotus mentions him. We go to the Roman historian Tacitus. We see that Tacitus mentions him. So what we see is this, is that nothing else. Jesus Christ lived in history. Jesus of Nazareth was a real man. Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth. And again, we, we certainly can't deny that. Some may, but again, I would suggest that they may be the ones who are following cunning devised fables should they deny the, the real existence of Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus of Nazareth lived. Oh, and what a life did he and what a life he, he lived. We see, we see in this man uh, the, uh, everything that we, that we understand about our, our way and our approach to God. This is why we read that passage of scripture from, from Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. In, in, that, in that chapter, uh, Hebrews 1, we have all the essential elements of, of proper Christology. We have Jesus Christ referenced as being in the very nature God. We have Jesus Christ referenced as being the outshining of his glory. We have Jesus Christ referenced in his saving work as purging our sins. We have Jesus Christ referenced as being a, a rewarded by the Father for the work of a, for, for accomplishing the work of redemption. Hebrews chapter 1, again... <laughs> In a, in, 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 a, in a holy book full, full, full of great passages about Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 1 may be the, one of the greatest. It's a wonderful passage of scripture. And this is what we see concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, this one who lived in history, this one who still lives this present day. And so the things that we see about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, a historical person, he truly existed, he lived, he taught, he validated everything that he taught by way of his life and death and the factuality of his person is testified to by historians as I've already mentioned. But not only do we see uh, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, and again, I want to, I'm bringing him to your attention because, again, we're establishing the fact that your faith is not built on some cunningly devised fable, but it's, it's based on, on the factuality of the person of Christ. And when we look at the person of Christ, while we give precedence or, or priority to his nature and to his work, we cannot ignore his teachings, can we? 
And I would even say this, that the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, become those things which help validate everything that we understand about him. And you look and you listen to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And what do we see? Let a person truly understand, and this is the key, let a person truly understand and rightly apply the teachings of Christ to their life. And what will you observe? You will observe a life well lived. Have you ever seen anybody make a mess of their life who truly understood and rightly applied the teachings of Jesus Christ to their life? You haven't. And you won't. But let a person who knows better not live up to what they know. And what will you see? Sadly, sometimes you'll see messes that are made of lives. It's a sad thing, isn't it? And so again, let a person follow the teaching of Jesus Christ and you will observe a life well lived. Let a person conduct their life in accord with the teachings of Christ and notice how that person will be kept from destructive choices that so often ruin lives. Isn't this an amazing thing? We have choices in front of us, don't we? Choices of what to do, how to do it, what not to do, what to do. And how many times do we notice individuals embracing destructive choices that they know are destructive and they do them anyway? Well, again, let a person embrace the uh, the person of Jesus Christ and follow the teaching of Christ. And what will you see? You'll see a person who will keep himself from many destructive behaviors. He may be mocked for some of the things that he doesn't do, but he'll never fall into the danger of the destructive habit that many are calling him to. And so again, let a person follow the, the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let a, let a person approach God in the terms laid out by Jesus Christ, and you will observe a person who knows not only how to live, but who also knows how to die. You see, this is what Christianity gives to us, isn't it? Here is, a, here is a faith that equips us for life and for death. And so again, I, I bring to your attention the, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ when we consider the fact that we've not followed cunningly devised fables. We've, we've followed the, the life and the teachings of this man who loved us and gave himself for us. But this brings us back to the idea of his teachings. And, and in the context of Second Peter, what was the teaching particularly that was on the table, if I can put it that way? It, it was the teaching of his second coming. And you see, this is something that was essential to gospel preaching then, and it must be essential to gospel preaching now. Did you notice again what Peter says in, 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 in verse 16? He says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you. When we made known to you. He's talking about apostolic preaching. He's talking about preaching that is found on the pages of the, of the Bible. He's talking about that preaching that in, by way of contest was the same no matter who was preaching it, whether Peter was preaching it, whether Paul was preaching it, whether Stephen was preaching it. The content was the same. Why? Because the message was the same. And in that message was the message of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that that is what was being attacked. And Peter says, no, no, wait a minute. This is no cunningly devised fable. The one who spoke these things, the one who taught these things, is the one who lived in space and time. The one who taught these things, the one who uh, who spoke these things, is the one whose teachings, if you follow, you'll find success in life. The one who taught these things and the one who spoke these things is the one who died and rose again from the dead for my sins and your sins. No, no fable here, Peter says. And so again, when Peter talks about, again, this idea that when we made known unto you the power and the glory... You see apostolic preaching. You see, this is, this is the essence, and this is something that we have to remind ourselves of today. That preaching is to be apostolic in the sense that it's to rise up from the pages of Scripture. 
The preaching is not to be uh, those things, uh, those ideas that we develop in our head, those, those, those fantastical things that we, that we think of and, and just speak about because they're so interesting to hear. No, the preaching of the Word of God is to be the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. It's to, be, it's to be the same if the Lord tarries 1,000 years from it as it is now. It's to be based on the pages of Scripture, the Word of God itself. And so again, Peter says, we made known unto you the power and coming. And this is again the reference to the, to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming again in power. And there's a sense in which we would say this, that there are three things that, that kind of fix the certainty of our conviction about our Lord's glorious return. Three things. Number one, it would be this. It would be the, the apostolic preaching that, we, that, we, that we're talking about. Number two, it would be the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament. And number three would be the teaching of Jesus Christ himself. These three things give to us certainty by way of our conviction that Jesus Christ, again, Jesus Christ will indeed return in glory. Let's consider each of these. First, consider with me the Old Testament prophecies. You know, it's an amazing thing to see how many times in the Old Testament the prophecies of our coming of the, of the prophecies of the coming of our Lord are actually prophecies of his second coming. We have passages of scripture like Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. You know the passage of scripture. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Here we have the first coming and the second coming brought together. And it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will perform it. It is God's zeal that will ensure that this comes to pass. Just as God's zeal brought about the first coming of our Lord, so it will the second coming of our Lord as well. We see this in Daniel chapter 7 as well. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. And came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is that which shall not be destroyed, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another Old Testament passage of scripture, Zechariah chapter 10, excuse me, excuse me, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. Now listen to this, verse 11. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be, and, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. Did you get that? God himself is saying, I will come. And in verse 11, it says that you shall know that the Lord has sent me. What's being referenced here? What's being referenced here is that the Lord in his divine majesty is the one who is coming to the earth. It's the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we embrace the reality of this truth based on the prophecies of the Old Testament. We embrace the reality of this truth because of the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, as I mentioned, he makes reference to coming in his father's glory in one place. In another place, he makes reference to coming in his own glory. I, I find this, again, just, just so interesting, amazing even, that the Lord Jesus Christ can speak of the father's glory and his own glory in the same context. And that there is no discrepancy here. That the glory of the son is the outshining of the glory of the father. Listen to these passages. For the son... 
For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. That's in Matthew 16, 27. Then in Matthew 25, verse 31, we read this. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all of the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. You see, the context is the same. And in the one passage, he comes in his own glory. In the other passage, he comes in his Father's glory. You see, the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father is a shared glory. It's amazing, isn't it? This is why, again, we read that passage from Hebrews chapter 1. He is the the outshining of his glory, the express image of his person. Oh, the glorious person that you worship this morning, Jesus Christ. No cunningly devised fable, but that which was divinely attested. But the third reason why we, we hold fast to this doctrine of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is because of the preaching of the apostles. Again, it was part and parcel of the apostolic message. When you take a look and try to summarize what the apostles preached, basically they preached a number of very basic things over and over again. They preached that Jesus Christ came, excuse me, they, they preached that Jesus Christ was sent to the Father. They, 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 they preached that Jesus Christ lived according to what the, to what the scriptures command. They, they claim that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again the third day, and that he's coming again. This made up what we might call the center, the, 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 uh, the core of apostolic preaching. And these things being brought out, and Peter saying again, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. He'll not even allow us to say, okay, listen, there's a kernel of truth here, but this isn't all true, but we're going to hold on to it because there's such a good lesson to be learned. He doesn't even say that. Let the modern religious scholars say that. Peter's not going to say it. And can I say it this way? Every preacher worth of salt won't say that either because he'll preach what's on the page of Scripture. And so again, Peter bringing to our attention the, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ as to why we make the case that we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, that's Peter's next point. And what he's going to do now is he's going to, to move from uh, the person of Christ himself, and now he's going to engage us by way of his own eyewitness testimony. And as I said before, you know, even in our day, even with all of our advancements in uh, scientific forensics and every, everything else by way of recreating scenes and, and evaluating things to see what really happened, eyewitness testimony is still very important. And particularly in the day in which Peter lived. And the scriptures tell us that again, by, by, the, by, the, by, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, shall every truth be established. So again, eyewitness testimony is very, very important in our day, and especially important in the day of the scripture. And so Peter brings to bear his eyewitness testimony. Now what's Peter speaking of? What Peter is speaking of is, again, the, the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are a couple of amazing things to see with that. And you remember the passage of Scripture, and I'll, I'll ask if, uh, if you'll turn there, go uh, again to Matthew chapter 17. We read it this morning. Matthew chapter 17 is, is the place where we're going to uh, kind of consider uh, what Peter was an eyewitness to. Matthew chapter 17, uh, starting in, uh, in, in verse 1. And again, Matthew writes, uh, again, what Peter sees, uh, and after six days, Jesus, Jesus taketh Peter and James and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into the high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. 
And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with them. And then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And so again, this is what Peter is recounting. He is recounting the reality of his seeing everything that happened on that holy mount. The person of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured before them. And there's kind of an amazing observation that we should make here, an interesting observation that we should make here, is that when we see in Matthew 17, we see that there was a glory that embraced or that shone from our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he was transfigured. But then when we see here in Second in, uh, in Second Peter, what we see is that the majesty was a majesty that was given to him by the Father. So it's one of these things where we have the inherent glory of Christ and then the majesty that the Father confers upon him. It's a wonderful thing to see. And so again, Peter as an eyewitness. Now what you have to understand is this, is that in the in the scriptures, that eyewitness testimony is of great, great, great value. And that the biblical writers over and over again take great pains to make the case that they were eyewitnesses of everything that they claimed. We have it here again in Second Peter. Peter is saying, basically, listen, you've not followed a fable because I'm saying to you, we, I've seen these things with my own eyes. And it's interesting to see how many times in the scripture these claims are made. You know, First John chapter chapter one verses one through three, when John says this, says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled the word of life. He says, "Look, this 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 person, Jesus of Nazareth, we saw him, we heard him, we handled him. He was the very word of life." Luke does the same thing in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, and again, in his very well-known opening of the gospel, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they were delivered, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also having a perfect understanding of all these things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, O most excellent Theophilus. You see, again, eyewitnesses writing, the testimony of eyewitnesses. Paul even does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he is making a case for his apostolic ministry. He says this, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are ye not my work in the Lord? You see the value of eyewitness testimony. And what's interesting when we consider uh, the value of eyewitness testimony is to see what a premium Jesus Christ himself placed on it. As a matter of fact, eyewitness testimony was so important to the Lord Jesus Christ that should there be a failure to believe true witnesses, individuals would be upbraided for it. Listen to Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 14. Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that they had been with him as they had mourned and wept. And, and they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. And after that he appeared in another form on the two of them as they walked and went into the country. This is again the, 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 the uh, Emmaus disciples in Luke 24. In verse 13, And when they told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. 
Now verse 14. Afterwards, he, this is the Lord Jesus, appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and he upbraided them because of their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Could you imagine the resurrected Christ upbraiding you for unbelief? It's something that doesn't necessarily register in our minds. But let a person turn a deaf ear to an eyewitness testimony. Let a person turn away from what witnesses have truly seen. And the Lord Jesus Christ will upbraid us for that. And so again, the value and the importance of these eyewitness testimonies. And so again, you've not believed cunningly devised fables when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You believe divinely attested facts. But there's a third witness that's brought to our attention here. And this is the very voice of God. Notice what, what Peter says here in verse 17 again. For he received from the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son and whom I am well pleased. Verse 18. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. What we see happening here is this. Peter brings to bear the Father's witness to his Son. And so again, this is the primary point. The faith you embrace is divinely attested. It is attested by the very voice of God himself. And whatever else you may understand by way of the value of eyewitnesses, you must see in this very declaration of God himself the real substance of that which you hold on to by way of the truth of the Christian faith. But the voice of God in this passage of Scripture is very interesting because when we look at it, we see a number of things that, that arrest our attention. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. What kind of honor and glory did he receive? Well, I mentioned already that there was a sense in which there was a glory that was resplendent in the person of Christ himself. And that in the transfiguration, what you must understand, if I can put it this way, theologically what the transfiguration is doing, it is giving a glimpse of what his second coming will be like. He shall return in glory. You see, this is the idea. This is what's being glimpsed at on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he receives from the Father, what? Honor and glory. And what is the honor and glory that he receives? The words, this is my beloved son. You see, it is the Father preaching about his son. One man said about, about uh, Matthew chapter 17, he says, oh, what a sermon that took place on that mount. He says, oh, what a pulpit. The pulpit was heaven. He says, oh, what a preacher. The preacher was the father. He says, oh, what a subject. The subject was the son. You see, you have embraced the faith which is divinely attested. And so again, the father saying to his son, oh, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father loves to preach about his son. I am convinced that if God the father were here right now, he would preach Jesus Christ. I am convinced that if Jesus Christ were here this morning, he would preach himself. And I am convinced that every preacher, again, worth his salt, every church worth the name, will preach Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ. I determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Again, this glory and honor is given in the very voice of the Father showing approval for His Son. And He loves to do that. Again, Matthew 3, verse 17, And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17, we've already read it. Also in John chapter 12, verse 28, 
Jesus is praying and he says, and Jesus prays, Father, glorify thy name. Then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Father is, the Father is glorified in bearing witness to his Son. Jesus is there praying in John chapter 12, Father, glorify thy name. You might remember that episode in John chapter 12. This is right after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The Greeks are coming to, uh, to, coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they utter that famous phrase, Sirs, we would see Jesus. Jesus understanding now and Jesus embracing the whole idea that the gospel will now go to the Gentiles. And he prays to the Father, Father, glorify thy name. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. He is bearing witness to the Son and how the Father loves to do that. The second thing I want you to see here, uh, again, by way of this, uh, the Father bearing witnesses, is the content of the Father's testimony. We've already talked about the idea of giving glory and honor. We've already talked about the idea that there was an honor and glory bestowed on Christ, as well as a glory that he had within his own person there on the Mount of Transfiguration. But something else I want you to see here in this passage of Scripture, by way of the Father's expression, by way of the Father's testimony, it is a testimony of affection. I love that idea. A testimony of affection. He says, this is my beloved son. This is the son of my love. This is the son who is always my delight. This is the son who I always take pleasure in. This is the son who, if I have to say anything, I'm going to talk to you about him. You see, this is my beloved son. We see, and there's a sense... In which in this, when he, when he says in, in Matthew chapter 17 on the mount, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him, he is incorporating the words of Deuteronomy 18, where there was the great prophecy of the prophet that was coming, who was the Lord Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord thy God will raise up the, unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, like unto thy brother, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. And when Moses is there, and when Elijah is there, who is the father singling out to listen to? There was the great prophet Elijah. There was Moses, again, having something of a prophetic ministry as well. But who is the father pointing out? Hear ye him. The prophet that was raised up. Raised up for you, raised up for me. No cunningly devised fable here. And so we see the expression of affection. But there's something else we see here in this passage of scripture. In the testimony of the father, we see the father's delight in his obedience you see, it's a very, it's a very, it's a, it's a very worthwhile study to make concerning the person of Christ. How that the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, by way of his own inherent glory and dignity and nature, is the second person of the Trinity, the divine Son of God. He has this glory inherently, and in his incarnation, if I can picture it this way, he puts on the veil of human flesh in order that his glory might not be seen. And in this veil of human flesh, he comes and he undergoes the, and he undertakes the work of salvation. And it was a work of salvation that he had to do. He didn't just show up and then everything was changed. He had to be tempted. He had to be tested. The scriptures bewilder us sometimes. And they say he had to learn obedience. How does the Son of God learn obedience? He had to learn obedience. And there he was working out our redemption. There he was. In John chapter 12, his soul was troubled. The Garden of Eden, sweating drops of blood. Redemption had to be worked out. And yet when redemption is worked out, and when Jesus of Nazareth fulfills his Father's will, do you know what the Father says to Jesus of Nazareth now? Oh, the reward that will be given to you. 
That's why Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, And being found as a fashion of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him. You see, there is an exaltation that belongs to the person of Jesus Christ by virtue of his obedient work on, the, on behalf of the Father. By virtue of his work of redemption for you. When Jesus Christ bled and died for you, he accomplished the Father's will. And the Father will indeed reward him for that. And in Philippians chapter 2, that's exactly what's being said. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. What do we see happening here? The Father is exalting the Son in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which Christ comes full circle. He, he's in heaven in glory. He veils that glory in flesh. In flesh he works out redemption. And in resurrection, with that same flesh, the Father confers upon him a name which is above every name. Oh, the glory of Jesus Christ. You see why the Father loves speaking about his Son. You see why the Father takes delight in his Son. You see why the Father has great affections for his Son. My friends, you see why we've not followed cunningly devised fables. You'll be challenged with this. I guarantee you will. In your interaction with, with people who, who, who think critically, with people who will challenge you, with people who will pressure you, you'll be challenged on this. But I want you to hear the words of Peter. You have not followed cunningly devised fables. You believed eyewitness testimonies. You believed the voice in the person of Jesus Christ. You believe the testimony of Peter. You've heard the voice of God speaking in the gospel. And so what would I say to you as I close this out? Well, number one, what I would say to you is this. As I said before, understand, no myth here. No story that may be partially true, but has such great religious value that we can't give it up. That's not what the apostles preached. They preached a true, living, dying, and resurrected Savior who is coming again. My friends, that's what you'll hold on to. By the grace of Jesus Christ, that's what you'll hold on to. Let the world oppose you. Let hell threaten you. You'll stand there confidently in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I have not believed the cunningly devised fable. But secondly, what I want you to understand is this. Oh, the testimony of the Father. The testimony of the Father. Is it your testimony? Is Jesus Christ the one who you are in love with? Of course, you'd never be able to say, my beloved son, but can you say, my beloved savior? When you talk to your friends, can you say, this is my beloved savior? Oh, let me tell you about my beloved savior. Yes, you've made bad decisions. Yes, you've made mistakes. But oh, let me tell you about my beloved savior. Yes, you've committed sin. But let me tell you about my beloved savior who loves sinners. Don't you love that about the gospel? Jesus is a friend of sinners. Next time, you tell, next time somebody tells you, oh, I don't want to go to church. I haven't been to church for so long. The church will come down around my head. Tell them that's just the kind of people God are looking for. He's looking for those kind of sinners. And then the fact that, again, the delight in the, the Father's delight in the Son's obedience. Are you delighted in Christ's obedience for your, on your, sake, for your sake and on your behalf? The, Father, the Son was obedient to the Father, bearing your sins and bearing my sins. And because of that, there's redemption. And whatever else may happen between now and the time that we take our last breath, we have a Savior who not only died for us, we have a Savior who is living for us, we have a Savior who is interceding for us, and we have a Savior one day who is coming back in glory. Not a cunningly devised fable, a divinely attested truth. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how we thank you for your word and 
How we thank you for the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord God, what a message you have given your church to declare. Yes, a message that will be opposed. Yes, a message that will be scoffed at. Yes, a message that will be denied. But Father, you have worked within us, not faith alone, but faith alone, which sees in Jesus Christ the sufficient answer for all these questions. And so, Father, we ask and we pray that you would establish us in the present faith. Establish us, we pray, Lord God, that we might declare this great gospel truth. Grant these things, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.